This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello there. The sun is shining, the sky is blue, and the temperature is in the low 70s, and I am in gardening heaven. I just received three trays of native seedlings, Annie's hyssop, Joe pieweed, and milkweed. Each tray contains 38 seedlings for a total of 114 plants. Needless to say, I am very busy right now. I am building extensive areas for pollinators along the edges of what used to be my lawn. Anyway, I think we've got a great show for you today. Today, we'll be speaking with Fien O'Neulon, all the way from Dublin, Ireland. Fien is the author of the new book, Seeds of Mindfulness, 101 Mindful Moments in the Garden. His book shows us the multiple benefits we can gain by staying present and mindful in the garden. And now for some important news. Wildlife rehabilitators all over the United States are expressing alarm and concern about the number of birds coming into their centers who are experiencing extreme dehydration along with throat and stomach blockages. Necropsies, which are autopsies performed on birds, are revealing impacted food from bird feeders in the throats and stomachs of birds, namely dried or dehydrated mealworms. Caterpillars and worms caught in the wild contain water and help not only to feed the bird, but also to hydrate it. However, commercially prepared dried or dehydrated mealworms purchased for use at bird feeders may be too dry, especially if there is no water source readily available in the same area. This dryness can result in internal compaction in birds. While dehydrated mealworms can be a good food source for birds when eaten in moderation, wildlife rehabilitators are suggesting limiting their use to winter only. Once spring arrives and birds build their nests, they may end up feeding the dried mealworms to nestlings, which could possibly result in fatalities. Please keep in mind that nestlings cannot fly to drink from a water source. The ideal scenario is for birds to forage for wild insects to feed their young. Wild-caught insects provide the superior protein and other nutrition that nestlings need to grow big and strong. Yet another new study is showing that young birds are prevented from hearing and learning the vocalizations of their parents due to the loud noise of traffic. This new research is showing traffic noise leads to delays and inaccuracies in the development of song acquisition in nestling and fledgling birds. According to avian scientists at the Max Planck Institute for Ornithology and associated researchers, traffic noise interferes with the first 90 days of life, the critical period in which birdsong is learned in order to communicate with like species. At 90 days, the songs of young birds are imprinted upon the brain and remain the same for the life of the bird, a process called crystallization. Traffic noise is causing significant and permanent delays in song accuracy, according to the scientists, 
which can adversely affect migration, mating, and predator alerting. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. And now I'd like to introduce Fien O'Nulon. Fien is a horticultural therapist and gardening author who lives in Dublin, Ireland. He writes a weekly column for the Irish Examiner and is the author of several books about gardening. Today, we will be talking about his new book, Seeds of Mindfulness, 101 Mindful Moments in the Garden, published by Ixia Press, which is an imprint of Dover Publications. His book shows us how to attain multiple benefits, body, mind, and soul, by staying present and mindful in the garden. Veen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Catherine. It's wonderful. Now, I have to say, I've read your book twice, and I'm going to start reading it a third time because it really is helping me gain some peace of mind. It's just a phenomenal book. And um, of course, I'm a diehard gardener, but I'm like so many other Americans, you know, we, we make, I mean, we turn it into work. We apply our work ethic. It's hard to slow down and it's hard to breathe and just kind of relax and enjoy what we're doing out there. And you really address that so well in the book. Could you maybe tell me what brought you to write this book in the first place? So I would use gardening as a tool or a methodology to develop people out of an illness or a condition or away from a diagnosis. So really what you're looking at there is you're looking at the distraction of gardening to take you away from your everyday woes or complications. And it's using that kind of lost in the garden experience and create that space where you can allow your natural healing or the natural psychological recovery to take place. Because when you're planting your tulips or deadheading your rose, your attention is focused on that chore or on that task. And you're not necessarily thinking about your depression or your fibromyalgia or whatever complication it is that you have. So my training as such has been in medicinal botany, which is kind of advanced herbalism, and then the therapeutic uses of gardening. Sometimes that's, you know, the fact that if you're moving a plant on, if you're pricking a plant on, well, really what you're doing there is you're improving pinch force and hand-to-eye coordination. And that's very beneficial for somebody in recovery from stroke, where they're not having to deal with the pressure of an occupational therapist in a white coat, making them maybe put a triangle into a triangular hole or a square into square peg into a square hole. The process of gardening of something that they may be familiar with, the gentleness of it still does the occupational therapy as such and is deeply beneficial. But for me, I would have worked a lot with children at risk and and adults in recovery. And what I found there was that the gardening was this way of like the garden has just so many life lessons. So it's a way of building resilience. It's a way of psychologically strengthening the self because there are achievement rewards. There's task and completion. There's the, the distancing factor of not having to concentrate on your woes. And just in general, that gardening seemed to offer so many kind of healing potentials. And 
for me, I I had gone back then in order to do that. I, I trained as a horticulturalist, but then I went back and I, I trained in the various different therapies and psychologies and stuff, just as so I could work with the, the groups and clients that I was working with. And mindfulness was something that was I had used in my own personal life. I, I had a, a, a bike crash, a motorcycle crash a couple of years ago, and I had to go into recovery to kind of walk again and deal with pain management. And I found that the the breath control and the mindfulness side of stuff was just much more effective for me personally than the painkillers and the, the physiotherapy and that sort of stuff. So I wanted to incorporate that in, into the work. And I'd been doing that for a number of years. And every now and then I'd be asked to give a lecture or do a talk on the topic. And the book just came naturally out of that, that I kind of, I spent the year looking at how I was being more mindful within the gardening context and just taking notes on the various things that I found really worked with me and really worked with clients. And then I put it together as as kind of, rather than just writing a book about being mindful in the garden, I thought, well, if you do it in steps, like the, the book is set out of seeds and, you know, the, the various different seeds means you can dip in and out and you can try something. So if you want to try rake like a Zen monk, you can read that little section. If you want to learn how to smell a rose and the benefits of smell a rose, you can read that little section. It's just a nice way of dipping in and out to that when you enter into the garden. You don't have the stress of, I'm going to have to become a mindful gardener. You can just gently approach it. And for me, the secret of mindfulness, you know, really mindfulness is about being your authentic self. It's about being awake and present in the world. But it's too often caught up as being something that's like a relaxation technique or a thing to do. It's on the tick list. It's there with kind of Zumba class on a Thursday and yoga class on a Monday. And really to be mindful or to get the full benefits of mindfulness is to incorporate it into your daily life. So for those of us who are gardeners, well, that's what we do with our hours. That's where our time goes. All of our free time gets sucked into the garden. So if we can be more mindful in the garden, then we're being more mindful in our life. Right. That sounds wonderful. So now here in the United States, we are a nation of instant gratification. You know, we want what we want when we want it the way we want it, and it should be right away. So this whole idea of prolonged gratification of planting in the garden, waiting and watching and wondering, is kind of a new concept. But your book handles it beautifully. You know, body, mind and spirit, you you hit all the levels all the benefits that people get from being in the garden. I know you talk about how time slows down and you start to hear things you never heard before and notice, you know, bumblebees for the first time on your flowers. And there just seems like there's something enchanted or magical about mindfulness. Could you maybe address that? It's also a very sneaky way to become spiritual. I'm not even talking about fate or denominations. I mean, just your own inner human nature and that connection that you make to your personal creativity as a gardener, because that's gardening is about self-expression. So that starts to flourish when you bring your attention to that, that it's not just that you are trying to paint a bench in a weekend or plant a rose border or have a set kind of chore or task that you want to achieve it's no longer about curb appeal it's no longer about trying to set a certain aesthetic 
It's about appreciating all of the garden and all of the beauty that's within the garden. And even stuff like the hum of bees and just making that connection that, you know, when you hear the bee, well, really what you're listening to is the industry of the garden. That bee is going to pollinate all of your plants. And that's a wonderful opportunity to bring compassion, loving kindness, gratitude into the moment of a sound, you know, something as simple as a sound. It, it, it can be hard to incorporate some of the aspects of, of mindfulness that are about spiritual awareness, that are about being a more loving and compassionate person towards yourself and towards others. It can be difficult to incorporate them into your life. But I find it's very easy to be thankful that the sun has shone today or grateful that the rain is taking the place of a chore. You don't have to go out and water the plants today. It's raining. And that's a mindset that can be cultivated through gardening that then spills over into everyday life. So that the spiritual gifts of the garden as such come true. We, we, we cultivate a more holistic, broad-minded the Buddhists would call it interbeing, where you know we're aware that we're all interconnected and there's a symbiosis going on between us and the plants. I mean, the breath we give off, the trees take in and they replenish us by breathing out oxygen. So they take our carbon dioxide and they give us back oxygen. You know, we take their oxygen and give them back carbon dioxide. This is this beautiful connection between humans and trees. You know, trees also emit off volatile oils that are very beneficial when we come in close contact. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan of kind of hugging trees and, you know, walking through the woods I know there's a big trend now that's called forest bathing, which is about getting out into the forest. A lot of that is about leaving the city behind and leaving the stresses behind. But it's the ambient air contains these volatile oils that the trees have given off that have all the same benefits as aromatherapy. You know, so really what we're doing is we're, we're inhaling health when we are connecting with nature. And that happens in our garden. Even before you think I'm going to plant a lavender or I'm going to plant a chamomile or I'm going to make sure I have an aromatherapeutic bed in the garden, just being in there, the floral fragrances, you know, the smell after rain, the smell of fresh soil, all of that alivens the senses. And one of the great ways to kind of come to mindfulness is to just simply engage your senses. That brings you into the present. When you taste something, you're truly alive in that moment. When you smell something, you're truly alive in that moment. When you look at a flower and see how beautiful it is, your world opens in that moment. And this is the thing where it's slowed down and you know the instant gratification stuff it expands it extends it time expands in the garden you know people often go out to the garden and they say i'm just nipping in for five minutes i'm just going to pull a few weeds six hours later and it's dark and you're like where did that time go but you didn't notice it go it wasn't a labor you know it, it was time disappeared away and you were being your pure self connected with that garden you may have been doing chores you may have been pulling weeds you may have been mowing the lawn but you were free in that space your consciousness connected in with the universe in that moment and I and I know that sounds very kind of airy fairy or, or very you know higher conscious uh, spiritually motivated stuff but that's the, the the reality of it we as human beings evolved as a part of nature that's who we are. 
the great American philosopher Alan Watts, who comes from a Buddhist background, but but he said, we are not born into the earth. We are born from it, like a leaf from a tree, like a wave from an ocean. We are no stranger here. And that's that thing is when you engage with the garden, when you engage with nature, you're not the stranger, you're home. I mean, I'm a big fan of evolutionary biology and, and some of it informs aspects of this book, which is that, you know, we evolved to do certain things. And when we do those things, we get such a reward. So Hippocrates, the father of medicine, whenever you first came to him, he would say, go for a walk. And then when you would come back the next day, he would say, go for a longer walk. And his whole theory was, is that if we move and we walk and we put some effort into our living life, then that gets our immune system up and going. And that's the best way of treating an illness and a disease. If we came back day three, he might take a look through his notebook and find a medicine or whatever. But in the interim, it's the walking. We evolved. We stood upright at, at some point in our evolutionary history. And that enabled us to get apples off the higher branches without having to climb the tree. That enabled us to walk home, you know, with, with a big bushel of, of foraged food. And, you know, that led to us traveling and spreading out across the earth and maybe one day spreading out across space, you know, that we're fulfilling a function within that. And that because we evolved in nature, there are cues in nature that we can use today to eradicate the modern stresses. So one of the big things for me with gardening is greenery. And because we evolved on the savannah, which was quite dry, very brown. If we spotted green in the distance, well, green meant something. Green meant that there was living plants there, which meant that there was a water supply there. So green to the the human mind 10,000 years plus ago meant that it was survival, that we could get some water, and maybe the greenery was food, maybe the greenery could be used to make shelter, maybe the greenery could be used to make footwear to continue on the journey and travel. So whenever humans see green, it's kind of hardwired into ourselves that our systolic blood pressure drops, that we feel calmer, that positive endorphins arise in the body. So looking at green has a a health benefit in itself. So being out in green in our leisure time and in our activities, being out in green is boosting our immune system, boosting our self-esteem, boosting our confidence, boosting our motivation. I mean, there's such a health reward. But like I'm saying about the thing with boards is, again, in in evolutionary history, our relationship with boards is interesting. I mean, here in Ireland, we have bardic tradition poets, which are all inspired by boards. And even the meter in terms of the poetry is inspired by how boards trill and, and lilt. So there is that thing that, you know, boards taught us to sing and boards taught us to be poetic. And boards may even have been responsible for, for humans looking to develop language, you know. So all of these great things that we had in terms of fire, the wheel, the needle and thread, you know, listening to the boards was one of the key things that prompted us to become human. And, and for me, boards and the natural world are an extension of my humanity. And I am a part of the natural world. I'm no stranger here. We are not 
strangers here. So the thing with boards that I find interesting is that in a couple of airports across Europe, they use board song to kind of keep people calm. So the Muzak may be playing in the lift and the Muzak may be playing in the queue. But if there is a flight delay and the queue is getting very long, all of a sudden the Muzak changes and it's it's board song. And it's because humans naturally calm down in the presence of board song. Now that's generations upon generations upon generations of humans listening to board song, not just for its musicality, but for what it speaks to us about. So if you think of House Martins and Blue Tits and Starlings, they all sing, you know, to mark their territory, to communicate with one another, to inflect their love interest with the other board on the other branch. And in that activity, in that noise that they make, they are telling humans everything is okay. Because when they stop singing, that's when there's a predator about. That's when things are not okay. So for humans for millennia, hardwiring our listening system into knowing that the chirp of boards in the distance means there's not that much danger around the corner. But when they go silent, that's time for us to prick up our ears. That's hardwired into us. So when you step into your garden and you're feeding the boards and you're listening to board song, that's a comforting thing. But that's also something that has a deep psychological impact on what endorphins we are releasing in the moment. I mean, if you think of the other side of it, you know, like crows and ravens and vultures, they're silent most of the time. It's when they make the noise we have to worry because it's when they're making the noise they're hinting that there's carrion or a dead animal somewhere that they feed off. That So, you know, even in terms of what boards we listen to or what sounds we hear, there's something, in, there's a message in that to be found and discovered and used, utilised, you know. In the modern world, you know, we're so used to rolling news on the TV we're so used to flicking through the magazine. We're so used now to kind of apps and alerts on the phone that we're not really awake and alert ourselves. We're waiting on alerts coming from somewhere else to tell us how we should be feeling or what we should be doing. And when we abandon that, or at least put it aside for the periods of time that we garden, then we come more in tune with our natural selves. That's wonderful. I love it. So, I have to say your book could not be better timed with the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, I was just reading that the two biggest stressors in life are uncertainty and lack of information. And this COVID-19 pandemic has really unnerved and stressed out so many people. Even now with the vaccinations available, there's a lot of uncertainty about they're talking about these seven new variants of COVID and will those vaccines be effective against those? You know, of course, everyone's still wearing masks wherever they go. And I was going to add too, record numbers of Americans are starting gardens. They're uh-huh. starting vegetable gardens and flower gardens because uh, you know they feel safer sticking to home, and they're finding home-based activities and hobbies. And gardening is number one right now. So there are a lot of new gardeners out there. So, but again, like I was saying earlier, Americans tend to approach gardening as you, know, you used the word labor earlier. It's looked upon more as a job. So I think your book does a wonderful job of helping 
people kind of just tone it down and enjoy the present moment, whatever it might be, without trying to control things. Yeah, it, it doesn't have to be a labor. It can be a leisure. You know, gardening is, is, a, is a leisure activity. It's a place and a space where you can unwind, be yourself without stresses and worries, express your own creativity. I mean, in, even in terms of how you design your garden, do you want a cottage garden? Do you want a Zen garden? Do you want some modern steel and glass with tropical plants? All of these are engaging your own personal self-expression and your garden really becomes the palette of your aspirations too. You know, the big movement in terms of growing your own food, growing your own medicine, the whole movement to kind of shelter the planet a little bit and let, let gardens be the natural arcs of biodiversity, that we're planting more plants with nectar so that the bees can get through, can travel through the city and make their way back through into the countryside. That urban bees, you know, like we often talk about the decline in the bumblebee and, and what will happen in terms of all of the plants that it pollinates and the honey it gives us. But really, there are beyond the honeybee, there are thousands of species of bee and insects that also pollinate and that pollinate native plants that may be missed, you know, in terms of professional beekeeping and where there are apiaries, there are specific types of high yielding nectar plants that, that the bees would be a part of, you know, that it's, it's almost a farming system where the wild bees and the wild butterflies and the visiting insects to your garden are wholly dependent on the richness and biodiversity of the plants you plant. There are so many more nectar sources. So we're, we're preserving, you know, the insect population that do so good to our gardens, to the neighbors' gardens, out into farmland and into orchards. We're sustaining that. Gardeners are very much at the forefront of an ecological consciousness about, you know, not using too much chemicals in the garden, trying to be more natural, plant selection, crop selection, you know, all of that sort of stuff gives us a, a sense of control over what's going on. If you just stick on the news, it can look like doom and gloom, COVID, complications, what's happening with the planet, climate change. You know, stepping out into your garden gives you a sense of surety because you see that your patch of nature is still in Eden, that there is hope. You know, that it, it is an all desert and wasteland out there. It is an all doom and gloom. There's positivity to be had. And that your little corner of the planet that you're caring for, that's your compassionate heart radiating out into the world. That's you keeping this planet going. You are a guardian of the planet. You are an ecological warrior just by mowing your lawn, just by planting an apple tree, just by picking your own strawberries. You know, that's the great thing about it. And it's wonderful that all across the world and particularly in, in America, because America does have the influence that when gardening is, is becoming the pastime of people of all generations. For a long, long time, gardening was kind of the preserve of people who retired. Oh, what will I do now? I know I'll take up gardening. You know, if gardening or bowling or something else, and you have five or six things on the tick list. Now it's down to the fact that children are gardening in schools, that schools are creating green outdoor classrooms where the children will go out and do their mathematics under a tree. 
And what's wonderful about that is the word academic, academy, well, academy is the Greek for grove of trees. It's where Plato and the early philosophers preferred to learn. They preferred to learn outdoors because the fresh air kept their consciousness and their cognitive function in tip-top shape that they could learn and discuss and debate for longer and retain more of the information. So having our children outdoors aware of where their food comes from, aware of bees and pollinators, and just connected in with the earth. This is the reconnect that we need to make. And I know there are movements all over the world about rewilding, about reintroducing certain species that have gone extinct in an area, you know, mm. might be putting wolves into a, a particular region or, or mountainous region or bringing eagles back or wherever. There's a lot about rewilding in terms of sown native flowers and native seeds, bringing back hedgerows, changing the boundaries of farms to make them back where they were a couple of hundred years ago so that they could host and support birds and insects and wildlife. That's fabulous. But as humans, we need to get rewilded. You know, as humans, we need to venture out into nature, to go for a walk in our national parks, to go for a walk if we can get to a beachfront, if that's where we take our holiday. You know, if you're lucky enough to live close to scenic locations, go visit. Bring your rubbish home, but go visit. Get some awe in your life. You know, see the mountain range, see the forest, drink it in. It, it does you so much physical good. It does you so much mental good and it does you a, a spiritual wealth to, to reconnect with Mother Nature. So the fact that people can do that in a garden, the fact that even if you don't have a garden, if, you've a, if a, you're living in an apartment block and all you have is a balcony, you can still make an insect hotel and have it on your balcony. You can still have planters and containers and grow plants that those insects will take the nectar from or, or feed off. You can still even grow trailing tomatoes or strawberries in a small hanging basket or a small container. We all have access to the natural world. We just need to utilize it more. Right. Now, you mentioned sitting under trees, sitting on the ground. In your book, you mention actual physical evidence of a bacteria, Mycobacterium vacae. Is that the way to pronounce it? That has that's a it. effect, yeah. increases your serotonin levels. I mean, that's just amazing. I had no idea. Yeah, this is the wonderful thing with nature, you know, is that there are interactions going on on so many different levels. But the big one are, are the kind of the physical interactions. So, you know, if, if you think when you get stung with a nettle, Really what a nettle is doing is a nettle is injecting histamines into your system to cause the, the welt or the blister to bubble up. And then, you know, the tradition is you go get a dock leaf and you rub the dock leaf on and the juice of the dock leaves have antihistamines contained within them. So they take down the histamic reaction. But there are other doctor leaves that do other things. But that bare connection with soil is amazing because when we touch soil, that bacteria that's contained in all soil, the body takes it in, perceives it as a foreign body, but instead of sending histamines to cause a complicated reaction, it causes the brain to release more serotonin. So this is this thing that air connection with the earth, 
you know, and I often say to people, if you can stand barefoot on the earth, but if you can touch your own soil with your bare hands. Now, I know we need to be wearing gloves if there are cats or animals around because we don't want to get any zoonotic diseases. You know, COVID is bad enough. But it's that thing of where you can in your own garden and, and, and you know how clean it is or who has visited it lately that you can get this high really serotonin is the happy hormone and it's that thing that when you're in the garden i always feel like i'm being medicated towards joy i mean if you think about sunshine sunshine causes our skin to synthesize vitamin d vitamin d is the precursor of serotonin so the sunshine is is causing us to to have this antidepressant effect and then the blue wavelength that's in the blue sky when it's daytime that pings the receptor at the back of the eye that causes the pituitary gland to release serotonin. So if you're touching the soil, if it's sunny out, and if there's blue sky going on, you're kind of getting three hits of serotonin in your day. And for me as a social and therapeutic horticulturist, that's where when I'm dealing with people with chronic anxiety, with depression, that aspect of the garden where it's actually physically medicating somebody it's actually giving them that lift before you get into any of the psychological aspects of being in the garden that's what's so amazing this is the reward of humans evolving to become hunter gatherers to go walk to be bipeds to stand up and travel around and i mean in our early existence we would have done it barefoot and the interesting thing about barefoot i often say to people look if you have bad arthritis or you have chronic pains or you feel like you're you're dealing with a lot of toxic stress in your life, now whether that's family members or whether that's environmental pollution or whether that's just the, the stresses of having to pay a bill or whatever, if you stand barefoot on your lawn for five minutes, what happens is a process that's now known as earthing or grounding and it's that the polarity of the earth pulls all of the static electricity and stresses that are in your body. It lowers your cortisol levels, pulls it out through the soles of your feet into the earth. Once we become zero charged, we have a massive flood of catalase. Now, catalase is a really potent antioxidant that goes around the body, mopping up all the free radical damage. That's all the damage caused by stress. So, you know, that's the reward of walking barefoot on the planet is that we're not building up this static electricity now humans have evolved a lot everything has changed since the the days of the savannah we spend a lot more time indoors we spend a lot more time indoors in hermetically sealed buildings where we're not getting the fresh air where even though the sunshine may appear to be coming through the window we're not actually synthesizing the vitamin d on our skin we're working under and living under fluorescent lights they don't give off. Their wavelength is different to the blue wavelength. So we're not getting those hits of serotonin, which are not only the happy hormone, they're the hormone that keep us motivated and activated. They're, they're a kind of a milder milder form of adrenaline as such. The, 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 the morning sunshine is your cup of coffee to get up and go out on your day and go, as our ancestors would do, hunt the mammoth, hunt the bison, gather the berries. You know, it's the driver of your day. When it gets into evening time and the red wavelength comes in in the evening, that's when serotonin stops being produced in the body. 
and melatonin is produced. And melatonin is the restful hormone that helps us get to sleep. The issue is working under modern lighting systems in modern artificially lit buildings, that's on the wavelength of the red wavelength, which means that we're being are starting to feel tired more during the day than we should be feeling energized. And unfortunately, we're reaching for more coffee and more sugary donuts and more snack foods. And we're trying to drive up more energy and we're having sugar crashes and we're getting tighter and tighter. So when it hits two or three o'clock and we think, oh God, I'm hitting the food slump here. It's not really that you need a snack. It's that you need to get outside and get 15 minutes of sunshine. And that will give you the vitamin D to create the serotonin to give you the boost of energy. And then the consequence of modern living, because people are on their tablets and their phones all of the time, is that the light that comes off your devices, well, that's quite similar to the wavelengths that creates the ping in the pituitary gland. So when you're looking at your device at night, you're actually releasing daytime chemistry into your system. No wonder you can't sleep. You're wakening yourself up the more you're you're looking at your phone or looking at your device. So even if you have an app that's telling you how to calm down in five easy steps, well, the chemistry is contradicting that. So even, even if you're there you know, on your phone, trying to listen to calming water sound music to help you drift off to sleep. Well, the light that's emitting from that is keeping you awake. You know, so the best thing we can do for ourselves is turn our devices off. And I'm a fan of spending as much of the daylight as I can in the garden. But before I go to bed, I like to spend a half an hour in the garden because the darkness is making sure any excess serotonin in my system is turning itself into melatonin and I have a proper night's sleep. And that's the key to health all around. That is wonderful. So now could I ask you maybe to share a page or two with our listeners? Okay. I'm sure they'd love to hear it. So it's not a book that starts once upon a time. (laughs) Maybe the next one. I'll just read you a section from the introduction. Just because it's a good way of explaining kind of the concept of what mindfulness is. Mindfulness is the achievement of an awake presence to be fully realized and cognizant in the moment or at any given moment, what some call being in the now. It is a focused self, fully aware and participating in the moment, in what is happening, in the life of your own being, not sleepwalking or daydreaming through the moment, circumstance or situation. It is you being here, right here, right now, awake and present as a spiritual tool best known in the Buddhist tradition as a key practice on the path to enlightenment, entering into the attentive awareness of mindfulness is a way of switching your spirit on, of manifesting your pure reality. In this space, your alive essence is unhindered by ego and emotions and the you without layers of conditioning, one might even say the natural you emerges. In this more natural state, where the reality of things are not clouded by thought biases or emotionally triggered judgments or preconceptions, your psychological self actually experiences the world or a situation and your part in it for what it really is. You could say it is the real you in real time living a real life. That's beautiful. Thank you. So we just read a four seed the soul because that's a, a good, I mean, the rest of the book is really 
trying to create activities and opportunities to become more mindful. So it's how the various different gardening tasks and chores and activities that we do are opportunity for us to activate them in a mindful way or appreciating them for their similarness to a mindfulness practice. You know, how walking the lawn can be a walking meditation, how smelling a rose can be a moment of transcendence, how looking at a flower can be that opportunity to express gratitude or even, you know, a slap on the back for the fact that you have nurtured that flower over many seasons and look how well it's doing. And, you know, there is absolutely no harm in extending some self-compassion, some positive self-regard, some kindness towards ourselves. You know, that can be one of the tricky things that we shy away from because we fear it as being an ego thing or getting too big for our boots but it's nice for us to connect with ourselves as well in a kind and caring way, you know, to get that level of support, to keep the motivation going as such. So this one is a, a four seed to sow. Following your breath is a key tenant of mindfulness. It is the seed that germinates to a bountiful experience. Simply close your eyes for a moment and quietly focus on the natural breathing pattern. Hear it, feel it. Notice the inhale and how your body moves to it. Notice the exhale and how your body reacts to it. It may be shallow and nasal now, or it may be deep and lung filling. That's not the important part, not yet. Just notice it. Try to pay attention to it for 20 seconds. The in, the out, the in, the out. Any thoughts that come, let them come and go and keep returning your focus to your breathing rhythm. That's it. Job done. Begun the journey. Mindfulness is that simple. Returning your focus to the task at hand. In this instance, and in many ways, the concept of simply following your breath is the key that opens the mindful door. Breathing is your automatic life support system. This is you being alive. Tuning into it is tapping into the very engine of your existence. It is such a little thing to do, but it has such a powerful effect. That is wonderful. Well, I want to thank you so much for reading some pages. We're about ready to wrap up now. Is there anything else you wanted to add before we close today? No, just keep gardening, guys. You know, that's that's the thing. You know, it's it, it does us a wonder. It does the planet a wonder. It does your local community a wonder. You know, we we are... We are flying the flag and promoting the the benefits of garden by simply having a beautiful garden, by being active, by living fulfilled lives. You know, they say that gardeners live for 15 years longer than non-gardeners and that we are perpetually smiling. I don't know about the perpetually smiling bit when the slugs have taken the, the lettuce leaves, but through mindful gardening, we can learn to, you know, develop a bit of equanimity and just acknowledge that the slugs were hungry and we don't have to take it personal. But by being gardeners, we're doing a lot for ourselves. We're doing a lot for the planet. We're doing a lot for the community. So just stick with it. Keep going and happy growing. Sounds good. Fiend, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Catherine. 
I'd like to thank Fino Nulon for joining us today. You can find his book at doverpublications.com, or you can go to amazon.com or the Barnes & Noble website. You can also find out more about Fino Nulon and his books by going to his website, theholisticgardener.com. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye for now.